Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever send money abroad? You may not realize it, but when you need to, you should use TransferWise. Don't use a bank or PayPal. That's like going to McDonald's for a salad. They have it, but other people do it better. Instead, use TransferWise. TransferWise always has a great exchange rate and a super low fee, which is probably why they already have over 4 million customers. And their borderless account lets you hold over 40 currencies at once and convert them whenever you like. Test it out for free at TransferWise.com slash Chang. C-H-A-N-G. TransferWise.com slash Chang. Or download the app today. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is John Heileman, political correspondent, TV journalist on the Showtime show, The Circus. It's fantastic. I've known him for several years now, and he is someone that pokes and prods me, makes fun of me in the best ways possible. I love him dearly because there's just not that many people that are as outspoken as he is, as Uh, believe in his core principles as much as he does. And I think is genuinely a great person. He's hilarious. He's so goddamn smart. And I love his insights more than ever, particularly in the political climate that we're in, because he's not just boring about it. He, I think, gives me real sort of a cultural compass of where politics are going. And besides that, he's someone that I've just hung out with. He's hilarious. He loves sports. And he was in town shooting an episode in LA for the circus and we had him in and I didn't know what we were going to talk about. So we started talking about Brett Kavanaugh. It seems to be all people are talking about these days, particularly with his nomination to the Supreme Court. And I couldn't imagine someone better to sort of unravel the meaning of that all, particularly for myself as It's been a very weird sort of month for me, and I knew he was going to bring it up. I don't know if I brought it up first, but it's something that I'm not particularly happy with for him being in the Supreme Court. And I'm not one to usually be reticent and have difficulty explaining myself, but for whatever reason, it's still difficult for me to talk about all these things. And if I am not articulating it, it's because I still need time to process all of it. So And that's not all we're talking about. I think what we're trying to talk about was the sort of the future of America, political beliefs, and also just understanding the vast difference in culture of how you have privilege and how you are raised. And maybe that was the key to really unraveling and understanding this process that is incredibly polarizing. And I don't know how to talk about this stuff. This is all very new to me and I am wildly uncomfortable talking about it. So Apologies if this is something that doesn't make sense to you or it's not something that you expected to talk about. I never thought that we do a podcast and we talk about politics. That's just not what I thought we would do. But I thought with the where we're at in this day and age, we would give it a shot. I would not talk about politics if we didn't have someone like John, who is an expert in his field with great insights to help sort of shepherd this for me. So I'm not an expert. You know, I'm just a cook. But there were some insights that I thought were relatively interesting. And more or less, when I have someone like John on the show, it's a conversation. This is something that we would have had over beers or dinner talking about. So it was very comfortable for me to talk to him about certain things. And like many people in my life, they sort of take on a sort of ad hoc therapist role. So there's definitely that sort of back and forth that I have with my own therapist. But I need advice. And this is how I get advice from a lot of people. It just happened to be on my own podcast. So without further ado, this is John Heileman, this week's podcast. We have John Heileman from The Circus and very many other shows. Yeah. Welcome. Hi. It's great to be here. John is not going to hold back at his... uh, No, I'm not. I have a lot of questions to ask. A lot of questions. I'm going to take over the pod, basically. Good, good. Let's do this. Because there's only one of us... You're you're a real journalist. There's only one of us who's a journalist here and one of us who's, you know, a genius, but not really... Here's my first question. Let me start with this. Like, I understand why people eat at David Chang restaurants. They're great. Dave and I have known each other for a while, and I've eaten at a lot of his places in New York and other places, including all the way to Sydney, which was a great experience. I love... I just love your food. I love your hospitality. I love your vibe. I love Ugly Delicious. Thought it was great. The show's fantastic. I don't really understand this pod thing. Like, like who the fuck wants to listen to you talk about shit with people who, I mean, I get, I guess you talking to some food person, but like, why am I here? 
Like, why would anybody want to listen to me talk to you? For the record, the ringer schedule this. That's a lie, too. You, it's Chris you're, Chen that's You're, Chris you're Chen that fulfilling the, the white male quotient okay, right. for the year. For the year. Chris Chen did this. Yeah. Also, it, not a white, not a white, not, not a, white, and arguably the, not record, a male. We are friends. Yeah. Did I uh, text you, hey, come on the show? At some point, you probably did. No, you were, someone else. I at take some point no you, responsibility for you being here. You've texted me a lot. Of, I, I should open up our text thread and just look at all the texts we've sent each other and find like really good ones to read into the into the microphone. So again, like, some very strong ones from uh, various places and cities around the country. The people that I love the most in my life are the people that try to hurt someone's feelings. For me, <laughs> friendship is best when you're trying not to be someone's friend. Right. And totally. That's this why, is this is our relationship. Why it works for want us. Want to hurt someone's feelings? No, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I just want to give you shit. It's just fun. <laughs> it's just fun. I would never really want to hurt your feelings. No, no, no. The few moments when I've ever seen you look genuinely like fragile or hurt, I feel enormous empathy for you. Like I always feel like I, my heart goes out to you. But it's very rare because most of the time you're just like trundling along and like like destroying universes and consuming worlds before you. You just like fucking crush everything in your path. That's not true. That is true. That's not fucking true. It is true. Well, you've had some failures, though, which is the part of the reason I also like you. Like, you are the good example of someone who has— it's a fundamental piece of wisdom that, like, people who haven't failed at shit— nobody can be really genuinely great who hasn't failed in some significant way. And you fail a lot in small ways and have learned how to incorporate small failure into making better things. The iteration on top of failure— is a hugely important thing in Silicon Valley. It's a hugely important thing in politics. Like great politicians all lose. Like they've lost some race and it changes them and it makes them better because they've lost at something that really mattered to them. And then they come back and they get to be better. The people who just win at everything, their characters are just really weak. So it's part of, I think, part of your strength is that you've learned, you've come to understand that like experimentation and failure is part of the process. Well, this is like not what I expected, this compliment. Um, I Sorry. Don't, if you want to really fuck nice me up thing. in the head, that's how fucking sick John is. And you know how I'm going to fucking him up in the head? I'm going to compliment him. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, I did, I did, I did say you were, I did say you were a serial failure. Yeah. Uh, you failed on a, on a yes. serial basis. So anyway. So for those that don't know, you're on the circus. Is that your only TV show now? Well, it's the only, I mean, it's the series that we make for Showtime. You have to say Showtime's the circus because Showtime's like, the circus. your friend David Nevins would be really angry at you. if you David didn't, Nevins, like, very nice guy. If you didn't acknowledge the fact that the show airs on Showtime on Sunday nights when it's on the air, which we're in the middle of doing right now. We're in our fall, like pre-midterm run. And uh, we just finished doing the last three, like what we think of as our Kavanaugh trilogy, which you, if, if you haven't seen, I strongly commend you to see because they're all very emotional and very um, powerful episodes that were really, really well done by everyone involved in the show. So we're super proud of what we did the last three weeks. So that's the series that I make for them. And then I'm the national affairs analyst at NBC News and MSNBC. So I appear on shows on those networks um, with great frequency, more so when I'm not making the circus, which is a seven day a week, 18 hour a day grind while we do it. It's like a- it's And a, you're filming in LA, which is why you're here. We are here today. We're doing an episode this week on California, like a thematic kind of after three weeks of the Kavanaugh drama uh, saga we decided we would go to kind of the heart of the resistance, you know, and see in the wake of, of Brett Kavanaugh's elevation of the Supreme Court, like if you go to the heart of blue America, the capital of blue America, the heart of the Trump resistance, like what's going on in California. So we're here for the week to um, go talk to various people and, uh, and shoot a major demo tonight, our opening roundtable scene. We always shoot at a restaurant. Is McKinnon and Wagner going to be here? McKinnon and Wagner are here. They're on the way. Maybe it's in, still in the air currently. I think I got here ahead of them. I was at, in Austin this weekend for ACL. Um, so I was able to get up early and get here before them because I was already halfway across the country. Uh-huh. So yeah, they're on the way. And you know, we do uh, on that show, we have always incorporated food or at least the vibe of a place. Like we, we try to set the table for the show thematically and analytically by having the host sit around over a meal and talk about like what we're about to show over the course of the next, um, you know, the show is the, the show is basically um, like verite documentary combination of, of documentary and a news program. It's kind of a weird hybrid because it kind of gives you a sense of everything that was really important that happened last week without being just like a digest. It's sort of like it tells a story over the course of the week. So we sort of set the table for that at a table often of some friend of ours who runs a restaurant um, because we're all big lovers of food and food culture. So we land in various places. I think we shot at Momofuku in in D.C. 
at the end of the second season. So um, this will be our second. And Wagner's, uh, Alex Wagner is probably one of the coolest people I know. And she's a huge food person. She is. Her husband, Sam Cass, of course, famously was the chef for the Obamas um, for a long time. And um, and she's, she's beyond, badass. Beyond, beyond, she's badass in every way and, and, and super cool and a great addition to the show. And we're psyched that she's with us and she's done wonders for us, partly because, you know, one of the problems we had with the show was just being candid about it was when we originally started, it was like three middle-aged white guys. And, you know, we always had an aspiration as the show got its footing that we would try to get a little younger and and more diverse. And she was the first person we thought of to bring on the show. And so she's now doing a great job being in there and doing it. And uh, her love for food culture and all the other kind of cultures that we all love, like, you know, music culture. And yeah, know, she's done it all. She's done it all. She ran the fader for a long time, was like right at the cutting edge of alt music culture when she was a younger woman. Grew up in D.C. Grew up in D.C. All true. Anyway, she's great, and we're great, and we're really happy to be here. And we, I, as soon as I saw Major Domo the first time I went, the main thing that is so impressive about that place is that I would say, unlike, I've not been to your Toronto places, but the rest of them are like, the physical spaces of them are not like, you know, cinematic. Let's put it that way. They're so, they're nice. <laughs> I mean, no, no, I'm not being sarcastic. No, I, mean, I like, know, I know. I mean, you know, but I mean, like, it's not like, when you walk into Major Domo, you feel like you're on a film set, for people who don't know. It's very, I think, shocking for people that, are expecting something that we've done in the past. Right. When you walk into Major Domo, which is in a part of, I'm from LA, so I know LA really well and I you know, grew up here. And, and so when I learned where you guys were doing it, I was like, wow, that's like a place nobody goes. It was a great idea to have it there and make it a thing that people have to work for to go to go there, I think. You're looking bored with me. I'm giving you another compliment. I know. It's a, I think it's cool that it's a destination. But the other thing is that because there's so much space, you have a thing you've never had before, right? Which is acres of space, outdoor space, indoor space, the giant walls with graffiti on them and all that shit. It looks like a soundstage. It looks like, you know, as soon as I saw it, I'm like, I really want to shoot here at some point. Oh, and well, now we're going there. I'm excited. Yeah. So don't fuck it up tonight. Okay? I will try not to. I want to like be part of it somehow <laughs> well, and ruin the show. If you show up, we'll try to get you a cameo. You no, could be no. like, you could be like a bus boy. Odd job. Okay. I'm your odd job. Hot job. So before okay. we go in, right, you know everything, you're outspoken as all hell, and you're smart as shit, and you're great writer, you're great journalist in TV as well, but a lot of people have been asking me about Kavanaugh. Yeah. And they assume that I am pro-Kavanaugh. Well, let's, can we unpack the reasoning? Yeah. The reasons for why this is? Why are people asking you about Kavanaugh? I graduated from Georgetown Prep in 1995. Right. And uh, a little known fact, I would imagine to most listeners of this podcast or most people in the world. In fact, when I started to mention to people that you are a graduate of Georgetown Prep, their basic reaction to ever, from everybody has been, what the fuck? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And had I known that I would graduate from a bastion of like white privilege, patriarchy, conservatism, like I didn't know it at the time. It was just, right. I was to play sports, particularly golf there. I was yeah. recruited. Right. And, uh, I could have gone anywhere, I think, and I decided to go there because for whatever reason, I, no shit, I thought uh, I loved Georgetown basketball growing up. You grew up in, in Virginia. In Virginia, yeah, in no. suburban Virginia, right? Yeah. So I lived there for three years. And long story cut short, disliked my time there intensely. And now it's very clear to me as to why I disliked my time there so much. But um, Meaning what? It just wasn't right for me to probably go there. <laughs> You I mean, just like in it. terms of like like bro culture, white guys, kegger culture, all that shit. Is all, that what you all mean? true. And Privilege right. and, and obnoxiousness and like whatever you— But I mean, I mean, listen, there are a lot of good people that come out of that of too. Course. But for me, like I think I had a lot of trauma just going through high school and fitting in and now realizing that I was never going to fit in, you know? Right. So there was a lot. And I said something that like some journalist, Jessica Sidman, the Washingtonian, said, fun fact in Twitter— Fun fact, Dave Chang also went to uh, Georgetown Prep with right. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. And I said, there's nothing fun about this fact. <laughs> and for the most part, I think anyone that went to prep would probably be incredibly complimentary of Brett Kavanaugh. Really? I think so. I think there's a lot of supporters in my high school for Brett. Right. Sure. Well, I mean, I think part of the thing is that you wouldn't have known him, right? He graduated in like 85. You graduated 85. He in graduated in like nine, nine years, yeah, t nine, 10 years later. Um, he... Is also like we have Kavanaugh Hall there, so like I think he's a legacy there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's been tough for me to talk about because like it just brought back so many things. It's just tough. It's like I didn't enjoy my time there, and right. it's really hard for me to be like, oh. But I sort of understood this watching the hearings and all the news. I was like, man, there's there's a lot here, and people are like, what do you think? And I was like, I. I don't even know how to talk about this stuff, right? I don't know him. Right. 
But I do know at that time, and I know the schools changed, is someone like Brett was celebrated. Like every year you're trying to celebrate, we're trying to create someone like Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, someone that is an excellent athlete, not the best, that happens to also be very good student and smart. Right. And on the surface of things is an extraordinarily good guy. Right. So it's so weird to talk about. I don't know why. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I get it. Like it's, you know, if you come from here, you know, I went to Catholic prep school here, which is, I guess, sort of the same, right? I mean, it's a little different in LA because the place I went, Chaminade, out in the Valley, was like— um, Good basketball were, teams, right? Good basketball teams now, not back when I went there. But they're they actually not bad. But there was a very—it um, was interesting. You know, it's California, so it wasn't like we didn't have uniforms. Like, the guys didn't wear uniforms. You had, like, certain dress code things that meant you had to dress a certain way. But it wasn't like you had to wear, like, the prep blazers and all that shit. Um, but there still was exactly that same kind of thing around, like, what the idealized student was. And the idealized student, if you went to prep school in California, was someone who could get into Stanford back in those days before, I mean, all these things were way less competitive than they are now when I was there. I was, like, basically, like, Kavanaugh's generation, right? So I graduated from high school in 83. And um, the idealized student was the person you just described, who's a good athlete, but not the best athlete, not someone who's going to be, like, in the NBA or someone who's going to be on the pro tennis tour, but someone who could play maybe, maybe could play a college level, um, and was a really good student, but not a, not a super genius, right? So like all the people that who were the smartest, eccentric, weirdo kids, or the kids who were amazing, like gifted, crazy level athletes, those weren't what you were trying to cultivate. What you were trying to cultivate was the kid who could get into Stanford, who was like, had like three varsity letters and had a 3.9 and was smart, but not like scary smart. That Brett Kavanaugh guy was also the kind of guy that our right. school was cultivating, but because it was California, at least, we didn't have that whole, I mean, not to say that there wasn't, there was more of a bong hit culture in my in my school than there was a kegger culture. Not to say people didn't drink beer, but like, it was more of a like going off campus. And the drinking age was 18 then. Yeah. Too, right? Yeah. But it was, also, I mean, like when, when kids at our school were like wanted to, and again, high schools, people do whatever they do, but like there was a very strong, like leaving the school at lunchtime to go home and smoke weed <laughs> kind of, that was, that was more of our school than the like pounding beers all night long, you know, and then throwing up. Yeah, and it's it's just like I had a hard time fitting in, and I felt in retrospect like it was very clear that I needed help from someone there, but the focus was trying to develop a certain kind of student there. You right. Know? So, But, like, I get that you didn't have a good time there, like, and I get why. It makes sense to me in knowing you and knowing, like, just even looking at you, you would have not been, like, the— I assume the school was getting, like, a little bit more diverse by the time you went there. You, well, were, the only, the diverse, you were the only non-white. The diversity at prep when I was there— usually came from boarding students from Korea, Mexico, and, right. you know, wealthy foreigners, right? But for the most part, and this is what I thought was interesting, is like, I don't know, but I probably would venture to guess that the people that were heard, like the Squee, PJ, I don't even know the fucking names. Yeah. I guarantee, I guarantee that they probably all went to modern day together too. Yeah. Which is the feeder school right. for Gonzaga, or Georgetown Prep, like it's the prestigious elementary school where right. that bond is developed. And I know what that click is because I, I was like, oh, that would be cool to be as good as friends as those guys are. And I think that that there's so much more there that I don't even know how to even talk about that too, right? Because right. I didn't go to modern day, but I know how strong that bond is. Right. But that's a little bit of a, so there's like an outsider element to this, right? Where you're there for some, you're not part of like the the mainstream, either from the the social, economic, cultural standpoint, from the institutions that that have been part of the conveyor belt that's fed through there for generations, right? You're not part of that, which means you're an outsider. You're trying to figure it out. You're not really, it's not really accessible to you. You're not like hating it necessarily, but you're kind of like, this is the thing I'll never, I can't ever crack this code, right? Right. So there's that. But I'm trying to parse this out a second. So first of all, there's like, there are bad places in the world, mm. right? And then there are places that are not bad places, but they're just places you don't fit in. It's just a bad fit. Like, you know, places where you look at them and say, this place has all these customs and traditions and mores that like, I don't, not really for me. It's fine. They, that's not hell. It's not evil. It's not like, there's not a bashing of badness. It's just, it's not good for me. But right? truthfully, I don't think I would have excelled at any place because I was such a fucking mess. Right. If, yeah, I'm a pretty, imagine me in high school. Oh, fuck. Jesus, man. Jesus. Yeah. 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 So I just, I think I, I think about that. I think it would have been difficult for me to be anywhere. Right. So, but that's kind of my point though, is like, you're not saying Georgetown Prep is an evil place. No. Right. You're saying Georgetown Prep was a place that I didn't fit in very well. I might not have fit in anywhere, but I certainly didn't fit in there. Correct. And the ways in which you didn't fit it, some of the things, the second thing you're saying is, I think 
you knew that asshole. Like in, when you looked at Brett Kavanaugh, you're like, that guy was, I, I hated that guy in high school. He was a dick. He was a certain kind of dick or this was a dick that was idealized. A dick, a, again, I'm just, I'm trying to, put, yeah. I'm putting words in your mouth a little bit, but I'm just trying to draw you out. Like that's a guy like who, he was a characteristic kind of archetypal kind of dick right. that you knew well in high school. Not that guy specifically, but that kind of guy. Yeah. There was a Brett Kavanaugh every year I mean, of your high I school I think a experience. lot of, like, would say like, oh, Dave is weird because he's a lot of different things. But part of the things that I am is like, I can be a bro. And a lot of it was like brainwashed into me in high school. Right. And I don't know, man. It's very strange to me. And I think about it was like, Gorsuch to me was going to pass with flying colors because he was a border straight, clean, was not cool. Right. <laughs> right. Kavanaugh, one of the most popular kids in school, obviously. Right. And then I wonder, can this guy actually be an impartial judge to anything, let alone a Supreme Court justice? Yeah. Considering if I can sort of use my head and, and like pick out certain people that I know and I could see them becoming a having a career like Brett Kavanaugh, would I feel comfortable with this person deciding the outcome of some very important things? And the question is, is like, no, I don't. Because I think what is hard for me to explain is someone like Brett Kavanaugh believes he's only done the right things in life. And it's only been emboldened by the setup that he's had his entire life. Right. That even when he's failed, it's never been seen as a failure, right. quite frankly. Right. Not like when I fuck up, like... I just have a hard time for him. For instance, he's done a lot of work in service, yeah. right? He checks all the boxes that society would say, this person's a good person. Sure. I just question, like, one of the issues I, how should I say? One of the things I actually liked about my high school was they fucking forced you to do voluntary service. Yeah. It forced me to understand empathy at a level that I wouldn't. So, so much of who I am is because I disliked high school, but because I disliked it, I think I had a struggle and I would not be who I am today. But I also question like the mission of what that high school does, because I feel like if you can, the moral compass of Brett Kavanaugh is intricately tied to that high school. Right. I think it's all super interesting in the sense that like, I think there's like a lot of bastions of privilege in America, you know, Georgetown prep is a particular kind of extreme version of that because it's Washington DC and, and there's a more precise, specific kind of privilege that that reflects and people's aspirations and ambitions are of a certain kind because it's Washington people trying to do certain things in, in what was the old establishment of like how, you know, he's old enough and I'm old enough to still be, we're not like from the 50s, mm -hmm. you know, like the, 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 the most Ivy League was the only way to go and you had to be, you know, I mean, again, California is different. So it never really was like that for me that much, but I, I remember that, right? And now it's like really different, I think, for kids coming up because there are obviously schools that have high prestige and there are obviously the, the establishments and privilege still exist. The country is so much more complicated now and so much more diverse and there's so many more different, everything's gotten, it, it's so much more fragmented, the ways in which um, people can excel and, and achieve and play out their ambitions. But back then there was a much more narrow idealized version of that. And especially at a place like Georgetown Prep, like what you were supposed to do, what the path you were on, what the boxes you were supposed to tick, where you were supposed to end up, what that path was supposed to lead to. And the thing about it is, and the point that you, I think are kind of illuminating is this thing is that there's a certain set of expectations of that you get inculcated where it's like, I, if I do all the right things and I achieve in the right ways and I tick the right boxes and I get the right grades and I get the right sports accomplishments and then I go to the right college and I go to the right law school, I am going to be on this path towards whatever that thing is that I want to be. In his case, apparently the Supreme Court was the thing he wanted, right? And he's on that track proceeding along his whole life with a sense of like, he's not, it's not like he's not working hard. I mean, this is a guy who worked hard. It's not like he's a not been lazy. It's not like this carried along on the basis of pure wealth that he's just being handed these things. He's working hard, expending energy, but with an expectation that if he works hard and expends energy and does the right things, the things he's supposed to do, that the that all this shit will come to him. And then he kind of deserves it. Right? Yeah. And that kind of entitlement, it's everywhere, right? There's a lot of people who have that, but it's very acute in a case like his. And I think what was so compelling about watching however you feel about how it all worked out, and even if you set aside and it's impossible to set aside, but even if you set aside the questions of, do you believe he did this thing to Dr. Ford or the other things he was accused of to Ramirez or to any of the other accusers, right? If you took all of the sexual misconduct out and just looked at that moment 
on the Thursday at the hearing when they had the special hearing and Dr. Ford came in and testified and he came in. It was so clear that like his anger and his desperation and his performance, which it was a performance, but it was very much on the edge of being like of control and total loss of control. His actual rage in that moment at kind of like, wait, what the fuck? Like I did everything right. Yeah. I did everything I was supposed to do. I ticked every fucking box. And now you're telling me I'm not going to get the thing that I'm entitled to? What the fuck? Exactly. And that like sense of like raw rage and the partisanship that came out and the behaviors, again, if you put aside all the sexual misconduct thing, I think if you're a reasonable person, and I know that there are a lot of like hardcore conservative and liberal institutionalists who care about the Supreme Court, who in the end, the thing that most troubled them was not the sexual misconduct allegations, though, if true, they're obviously disqualifying, but was the fact that on display that day, in the moment of truth, he suddenly turned into this right-wing ideologue who was talking about the Clintons and left-wing conspiracies and doing a thing no Supreme Court justice or no appointee had ever done before. No one's ever done it. Even Clarence Thomas, no one's ever come out and said, basically, I'm a Republican, and if I get on this court, there's going to be payback. I mean, he literally said that. He said, what goes around comes around. I'm the victim of a left-wing conspiracy, millions of dollars spent against me by people who are mad because the Clintons didn't get in, who are mad about President Trump. I'm now paying the price for that. And what goes around comes around. That's a fucking insane thing to say if you're about to be a Supreme Court justice. It's crazy. And it's not the emotion of it. Because I understand if you were wrongly accused of sexual misconduct and it was all wrong, you would be upset too. You would be emotional. But what we call on with these people who are going to have this lifetime appointment, the ultimate power on the Supreme Court to make decisions that are going to affect every person in the country, in that moment, to be emotional is one thing, but to turn into a partisan is like a different thing. And I think a lot of his, that that the emotional moment of it ripped away the facade of, I am a neutral judge, I'm going to be an umpire. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, I see what you are. You're a political operative who worked in the Bush White House and lied about a lot of stuff that you did in the Bush White House because you knew that if you told the truth about it, you wouldn't get what you ultimately wanted, which was to be on the court. So I think for people now going forward, their concerns are not, I mean, the institutionalists, people who care about the Supreme Court, who had no problem with Neil Gorsuch being on the court. No problem. No problem with John Roberts. No problem with Samuel Alito. They could disagree with all, a lot of things, they their opinions, but didn't think this person jeopardizes the integrity of the court. That's what people are freaked out about, about Kavanaugh now. And I think there's a straight line to it because it was the moment of truth for him when he was under the most emotional stress. And the emotional stress comes from the thing you're talking about, which is that moment where the entitlement and privilege was ripped away. And it felt like I'm about to lose for the first time in my life to go back to a very top of our conversation for the first time ever. I'm about to not get something I wanted. And in that moment, the raw like reality of who he was came out. And that raw reality is the thing that regardless of where you are on the ideological spectrum is like a little fucked up. Yeah. That guy's now going to be on the court because we now know who he is. And I don't mean a sexual predator. We don't know that. But what we do know is that he's a fucking partisan. And we know that he lied a lot. He lied in small ways and he lied in big ways. So you've got a guy who's a liar and a partisan on the court now. And I think that like, again, it's not liberals. It's like a lot of people who look at the Supreme Court and go, man, this is like a little, we've never been here before. And to me, after Trump got elected, I didn't, Trump's Trump, whatever, not to talk about him. But my, for me, the only concern was civil liberties, Supreme Court. And I think why I'm just unpacking this for me, why it's, I think, weird because of my high school time was here's a person and I know the institutions that created him and how he validates them as the truth and the light. And man, here's a guy that's going to try to shape the world in that image. And that's hard for me to comprehend. Yeah. It's really hard for me to comprehend because it's like, fuck, like I've been working so hard to get out of that for a long time. And it's like validation of all the things that I fucking hated. Yeah. Well, it's a basic thing. It's like kind of like I didn't like for you. It's like I really hated Georgetown Prep. There's a lot about it that not just was bad as an experience, but also represent, representative of a lot of things about America that yeah, I really like. Culture like celebrated, it validates it. And I was like, what about everyone else? And that's not the thing. Is like there are some amazing things about that school. Like truly, of course, amazing things. Of but course. it's it's about 
the people that we celebrate that came out of that and why they were like encouraged to be who they are. You know, and I heard like he's talking to Coach Fagan, like he was my football coach, right? Like it just was fucking hard. And I'm like, fuck, man, I hate this. Well, it's weird though, because with you, it's like, like really get on the couch here, you and me. Yeah. Like, you know, I feel like your public persona and your actual, not just your persona, but your persona is, is like integrated in a like organic way with what you've actually done, accomplished. It's like in some weird way, it's like a, it's like a wholesale systematic rejection of what Georgetown Prep represents. Absolutely. That's like your life. Your life is basically like, I went through that shit. I'm not saying everyone there's evil. I'm not saying that everyone comes out of there's evil. I'm not saying everything about the institution is evil, but there's a bunch of stuff in that that I firmly reject and I'm going to go build my life in opposition to that. Yeah. Right? And then to see the perfect product of that, like the perfect porcelain egg that comes out of that institution. Like this is our idealized version of what Georgetown Prep is supposed to make. Here is Brett Kavanaugh, the perfect like little scale, life-size working scale model of what we aspire to. And it's the thing that you've rejected systematically your entire life. And now that guy's on the Supreme Court. That's sort of fucked up. Yeah, it's, it's exactly, it's hard. it's hard for me. It's hard yeah. for me to express that because I'm like, who you're, the fuck do I talk to about this? You know? I would like you to, when we finish this podcast, you can go and you can transcribe that portion because I'm way more articulate about it than you are. You could transcribe Thank you. That's that. That's why you're the fucking you journalist. Could, you could read that as like a little, like every time people say, well, what's the, why are you conflicted about Kavanaugh? You can just read this thing. You, I give you the right. <laughs> Thank you. A, a, light, a copyright, free license. You can, you know. That's the pull quote out of this entire pod. You can have it. Dude, it's weird. I think it's weird. You know, like I, when, I was at, uh, when I was at Harvard as a graduate student, I was at the Kennedy School in 1988 to 1990, right in the fall when Dukakis was losing to Bush. And that year was the year that Barack Obama and Neil Gorsuch both got to the law school. And they both lived like a couple blocks from me. And they were at Harvard Law School starting their first year when I was starting at the Kennedy School. I was there for two years. They were there for three. But I knew all these people who were law. They were, we were all, we all knew each other because like the law school, Kennedy School, everybody all hung out together. They weren't those big of classes. And they weren't like great friends of mine. But I knew those guys. Like, you know, you'd see Barack Obama smoking a cigarette on the steps of the library or whatever and playing basketball and in poker games and stuff. There's nothing about the two of those guys. They could not be more different, like politically. But there's nothing about their ascension to the commanding heights of American politics, either Gorsuch or Obama, that bothers me. Like, I basically know what those guys were like at a formative time. And neither one of them, I mean, again, I agree with one more than I agree with the other about like what they think the right policies or outcomes should be. But there's nothing problematic about it. There's nothing that looks at you, look at them and go, my God, they should review. There's nothing troubling about the fact that they or have become as important as they became. It's a different thing, I think, when it's, I mean, high school is a deeper, more formative period, for one thing. And this, yeah. is, this is a very, <laughs> this is a very emotional thing. And it's so weird because of all the graduates, I was a fucking mess in high school. Like the biggest mess you could possibly be. How the fuck did I get embroiled in any of this stuff? I even know. like remotely so. So, but even there, like, you know, you, what's the name of the, uh, of the school that she went to? Um, Holden Arms. Holden Arms, okay. Great school. Holden Arms, the reason I raise it is this, right? So, you know, the woman who's was Michael Avenatti's client, who has now like every, you know, there's an interesting debate going on about whether or not he made a mistake by bringing her forward, uh, whether she was really credible, but certainly by the way that he wrote, that the way that her statement came out, which allowed the Republicans to like seize on the notion that she was making these crazy accusations about gang rape, right? There's a whole interesting political discussion about that. Did Avenatti actually hurt the Democrats more than he helped them? Did he give Republicans a way to discredit all of the women by having her make these more extreme allegations? And, and there's interesting questions about whether you could have framed that differently without using some of the provocative language that let Republicans seize on the notion of, you're saying Brett Kavanaugh's a gang rapist. Well, if you read her affidavit, she never says that. What she says is she went to a bunch of house parties and then there were people who spike punch at some of them. And then at other ones, there were places where she saw boys lined up outside rooms, taking turns on a certain girl. And then that she was gang raped. What that became for Republicans was she says that she went to 20 house parties or 10 house parties where gang rapes happened. And Brett Kavanaugh was running a drug and gang rape gang. It's like, she never said any of those things. Like literally not one of them. It's just like building this straw man. The reason I raise it is because, you know, I met this woman very briefly and we had her on camera on the circus for the first time. And I literally met her for 10 minutes. And then, you know, there are a lot of questions about her. There are good questions about her. Should be asked. Good questions. But what's crazy about it is that at the same time, and this is, this is going someplace, I promise you, is that at the same time, Vanny Fair wrote this story. This woman, Emily Jane Fox, wrote this story about holding arms and about this private Facebook group of girls from holding arms who 
as soon as Dr. Ford came out, were triggered to start corresponding with each other in this private Facebook group about their experiences when they were in high school. And a large number of them who had similar kinds of experiences that Dr. Ford had in this culture of house parties that took place in the Prince George's County, you know, upper Northwest, upper Caucasia, as I like to call it in D.C., <laughs> um, you know, that part of that part of the world, right? That And they all said the same thing, not that there were gang rapes all the time, but they were like, there were house parties. There was spiking of punch. There were guys and girls who did these various things. We have a couple of people who said, you know, Mark Judge bragged about having been in group sex things. My, my point about it is not that any one of the things is like right or wrong, but reading these women from Holton Arms, like talking about what it was like in that time and place and what guys with that degree of entitlement and privilege and that amount of money and parents who were out of town a lot. And what was the, like, what was that scene like when you start to understand the scene, at least reading these things that are not part of some conspiracy, but just these women who had come forward were like, you know what? Like, this is a weird fucked up time in the mid eighties in this particular place with this particular amount of money and this particular social milieu. And I can't help but think, A, none of it proves anything about Brett Kavanaugh, but all of it helps paint a picture of like what it was really like to be there then and be a guy like Brett Kavanaugh or a guy at that school at that moment and what kinds of license you thought you had at that moment. And to be a woman like Dr. Ford at Holden Arms and what kinds of pressures you were under and what kinds of experiences you had and the things that you saw around you at that point. And I say all of that just to say, if people really were to, to focus on all of that, it would be helpful so that they would understand like what the reality of that time was like and what the offspring of that culture were, number one. And it also points to a lot of, again, the kind of things you're talking about, because the hazing thing, for example, which you haven't gone into any detail about, it's not even about Brett Kavanaugh, but it does, again, illuminates the kind of thing that happened in that place in a roughly contiguous time. You can't help but be triggered a little bit by some of this yeah. discussion yeah. because because it does go to just what the fuck that all was like then. And and it not being pretty. How can someone like that have the ability to have compassion on a genuine level that's not associated with volunteer work, right? To Com someone that is less fortunate. Right, compulsory volunteer work. Right. right? Like you're forced to go do it. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. As no. you said, I think high schools that compel their kids to go do volunteer work is a good thing. And but, I, I just was surprised that there was not a bigger deep dive in exactly what you just described. Right. To decode Brett Kavanaugh, you really have to unravel that time period. And now a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Le Creuset. As a chef, we always talk about sourcing the best quality ingredients and knowing your suppliers, but using the right cookware and tools is just as important. Le Creuset was the first to pioneer colorful enamel cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality and design, and they have been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories it creates and the style it expresses. They are the first to introduce color to the kitchen and are pioneers in enameled cast iron, which features the superior heat retention of cast iron paired with unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. All cast iron is made in France since 1925 in the original French foundry, and each piece of cast iron is touched by 15 pairs of craftsman hands. Original heirloom cookware backed by a lifetime warranty. Bold colors and timeless designs allow for expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. It is, without a doubt, the kind of kitchen equipment that I constantly recommend to friends and family when they ask, what should I buy for my home? I also tell chefs, you should use Lake Say. It's great. It is legitimately cast iron that is great to cook in, roast in, braise, you name it. And it's also incredibly durable because of the cast iron. And because it's enameled, it has a lot of color and it pops both on the table and when it's just sort of chilling on your stove, it just looks great. Check out the new color from Le Creuset, just launched in September. Indigo is the truest blue. Inspired by the iconic natural dye, the rich, deep hue of Le Creuset's indigo is universally authentic a timeless true blue and bold neutral in style and cultures around the world. We also are using this recently at Major Domo. It looks great. I really recommend it. It pops. Get free shipping at lecrusade.com slash Dave with promo code Dave. That's lecrusade.com slash Dave with promo code Dave. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Here's a little insider travel secret from our friends at Hotel Tonight. 
there are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. And Hotel Tonight has partnered with these awesome hotels to help them sell those unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. Seriously. If you love scoring amazing hotel deals, you gotta try Hotel Tonight. Forget scrolling through a never-ending list. Hotel Tonight shows you a select list of incredible deals at cool hotels they think you'll love. And they even give a short profile of each hotel, complete with all the info you need and pictures of what the rooms really look like. Plus, even though their name's Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can book them in advance. Perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool and more. So to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com or download the app now. And now back to the show. Yeah, this must have been a hard three weeks for you. It's been really weird, man. It's been really fucking weird. To read all this stuff, I'm like, ugh. Yeah, a little too close to home. <laughs> yeah. Close to home. So, but you're probably glad that you're like, no one's ever going to call you a quintessential Georgetown prep kid. It fucking bothers me so much that people assume that I went to prep and I fucking liked it. I like the notion that that's people's assumption at the outset. Oh, you must like Kavanaugh. But that's really it, you know? Um, where do we go from here? What should be... I mean, you understand the zeitgeist. You know where it's going. Yeah. What the fuck do we do now? And not just vote, right? Well, I mean, I know it sounds like a trivial thing, right? But I don't know. What do we do about what? What's the question? I don't know. What, a more. You got to be a little more precise with me. What do we do now? I mean, look, I think it would be a really... If you are of the mind that you don't like stuff Trump's doing, and that includes nominating Supreme Court justices who are like Brett Kavanaugh, Really, like, I mean, vote is a pretty, like, if it wasn't such a problem for Democrats to do it, it would seem like a really kind of obvious thing. Here's my thing that I've been saying to people a lot recently. And, you know, it's obviously we're seeing this thing right now. Republicans are like all hot on the notion that there's this backlash against what happened to Kavanaugh. And they're trying to ride this notion to kind of get their base to be fired up. Their biggest thing is they previously, like the Republican Trump voters were like all fat and happy and not like going to vote in the midterms because they were like, you know, hey, we're happy. Like it's all going great. Steve Bannon said to me in the first episode when we came back this fall, I did this long kind of contentious interview with Bannon on camera, which at one point he said, the problem we have with the deplorables, he calls them the deplorables, the Trump base. He says it like in a proud way. He's like, the problem we have with the deplorables, they're all too happy. They're all like resting on their shovels. They think things are going great and they don't want to vote because they're not fired up. And Democrats are fired up. Democrats want to get Trump impeached. They want to have the resistances you know, on the, on the march. And he said, we got to get people fired up. So now they have this thing that they think has people fired up, which is that there was this Democratic conspiracy to try to paint this good man, Brett Kavanaugh, as a sexual predator. And they almost killed, destroyed his life. And now Trump's like riding that. You know, he's out today saying, you know, that he was the victim of the smear campaign, made up accusations, all, you know, just the worst kind of fantasies, fabulists creations. So Republicans are trying to cling to this notion that maybe even though he's now on the court, which is kind of a problem. Can he ever come off the court with any allegations? Because is that possible? It's it's hard. It's never happened before. There's a big constitutional question about whether you can impeach a Supreme Court justice for anything they did before they were on the court. You can impeach them. There's an impeachment process that clearly applies to various kinds of bad behavior. You can a Supreme Court justice who was on the take, for instance, like you proved they were taking a bribe. You could impeach them. You have to go through the process of impeaching them in the House and voting on the Senate. But there's a question about whether you can impeach someone for acts before you became a Supreme Court justice. It's a question. I don't, no one really knows the answer to it. It's not really ever been tested. I think the likelihood is Brett Kavanaugh is going to be on the Supreme Court forever. And so the question is like, what to do going going forward? Trying to answer your question about that is to say, Republicans think that they can, you know, gin up all this anger, this backlash to the backlash. Democrats are like, see, this is what happened here. Women in particular are fueled with anger and outrage over what the treatment of Dr. Ford and the fact that Kavanaugh got on the court. So what's going to happen in the midterms is, you know, we're going to see. But the thing I've been saying to everybody over and over again is like, it's just the reality. We had in December of last year, we had a special election in Alabama where a Democrat got elected statewide in Alabama. Okay. It was a little bit of an unusual circumstance because Roy Moore was the Republican and he was, you know, accused of child abuse and all this stuff. It was always extreme. But the reality is that if a Democrat can get elected statewide in Alabama, not in a presidential year, in an off year, a Democrat, you, there are enough votes. To elect Democrats everywhere. If you can get elected, you can get a Democratic senator from Alabama 
You can get a Democratic senator anywhere if the circumstances are right and if Democrats are organized enough and are driven enough and have enough energy and do the blocking and tackling on the ground to get people out. So the thing of like vote sounds like a kind of like, it's like a panacea, like, well, you know, just like, all we got to do is vote. It's like, turns out it's really hard. Democrats don't like to go out and vote in non-presidential years. And so you get these old white electorates in the midterms and Republicans do better in them generally. Right now, you know, there's no good reason why Democrats, if they are as stirred up about Trump as they say they are, and they look at this Kavanaugh thing and think it's a huge fuck you to like every woman in the country. If that's right, Democrats get their shit together. You know, they can start to take the first steps to changing things, you know, 30 days from now. Like the world changes if Democrats take control of the House of Representatives. Like every committee is now controlled by a Democrat who has subpoena power. And could spend the next two years not just stopping Trump on almost every front in terms of policy, but investigating the cabinet secretaries, investigating Trump himself. It's the difference between on the House Intelligence Committee between Adam Schiff and Devin Nunes, right? That's the difference. The difference between a serious Democrat who thinks Donald Trump is in bed with the Russians and wants to investigate that on a daily basis and use the subpoena power to really find out what the fuck is going on versus a House Intelligence Committee chairman who has been the ultimate Trump lackey for the last two years. But that's true on every committee in the House of Representatives. And regardless of whether they ever actually get to impeach Trump or not, just in terms of like, you want to investigate the EPA, you want to investigate, you know, the Commerce Department, you want to investigate Treasury, you want to investigate the State Department. If that's what you want as a Democrat, it's not that far away. You can start to turn the tide. And and progress is slow, in America. Like it's kind of designed to not be instantaneous. We don't have snap revolutions around here, but it's 30 days from now, you know? So go out and vote. Go out and vote. And I, I get it. Again, if that's your, if this is your jam, it's not just go out and vote. It's like register the people on your block, make everybody, you know, register three more people, get your community. If this is your thing, you want to stop Trump. All you got to do is go out and get a bunch of people who don't vote normally and who complain about Trump all the time to not just you vote, but them vote and get three more people to vote who they know. Do you think there's that- nowhere Democrats can't win if everybody just did that? It's not, I'd say just, it's not easy, but it's not that hard. Right. Do you think that, and I look at this in a world of food of trying to get people that are relatively conservative in palate to try something new. And I do think that you can know a lot about a person about how they eat and I I think it's almost impossible to get someone that's set in their ways to try something new right which I can use as some way of understanding the political problems we're in is is there any way we're going to find some concessions someone that finds the middle ground is it possible because both sides are so fucking stubborn and it's not even gridlock it is no one wants to empathize. No one wants to see what it's like. It's too quick to judge. It's tribal. It's like, it's tribal now. It's like, you know, basically like if you wear the red jersey, you wear the blue jersey, like you don't want to, it's not like you just kind of like you like the Democrats or like Republicans. Like you hate the other side. You hate the other ones. You think everything they stand for is like bad and wrong and evil. And you don't really even want to have a conversation with them for a lot of people. That's certainly true. It's more tribal and more divided than any time I've ever seen it before. But I do think part of the answer is the fact that like, even in like an Obama election, and when I say even an Obama election, I point to it not because Barack Obama's admirable or whatever, but because there was like the high watermark of recent participation. Obama in 2008, it's like 63% or something of the people of the eligible voters voted. It's like 37%. It's like, you know, nearly 40% of the country, the people can vote, don't vote. Right. So like the people who are diehard Republicans, they are not going to try something new on the plate. They are Republicans and they're going to stay Republicans and they're going to defend Trump forever, even though Trump's not really a Republican or really a conservative. He believes all this shit that Republicans have never believed before, but he's now their guy. So they're on team Trump. Republican party is Trump party. It's getting smaller though. And this is the thing that goes to some of the stuff you're interested in, which is that, you know, Trump is more popular within the Republican party than any president has been within his party ever. But the party's just getting smaller and smaller every year because it's made up. It's like the population of smokers. It's made up of old white guys who are dying off. Mm. The country is getting more diverse all the time. That's just a reality. Like whether it's 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years from now, the number of white guys is going to be a smaller percentage of the whole. Just inevitably, inexorably, that's not going to change. And so the part of that that's the Republican white guys is just getting smaller and smaller because they're literally dying off. The party's now down to like 19% of the country. 
is Republicans. So people say Trump's got 90% of the Republicans are with him. You're like, but it's only less than 20% of the country. Right. So like the question becomes like, what's the new America look like? And how do you get those people who make up what the new America looks like to be invested in the process so that 63% is more like 80% or 85%. And we have a more representative electorate of what the country looks like. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's more liberal. No. This is the problem with Democrats is they all think we get more non-white people to vote. It's going to be more liberal. It's not true. You know, there are a lot of really conservative Hispanic Catholics who are pro-life. You run into, there are all these, as you know, once you start to dig into the ethnic subcultures of American life here in LA, and you talk to Indian Americans, Guatemalan Americans, and Cambodian Americans, and Indonesian Americans, you find out there's all kinds of ideological diversity among them. Some of them are really conservative, and some of them are really liberal. But all I know is that, like, the possibility of having the conversation you want to have, which is a conversation that reflects the true pluralism of a really, really radically multi-ethnic, multi-racial, diverse society, the possibility of having that, it's right there. Demography is taking us to that society. Then the work is, how do we get as many of those people as possible to be part of the conversation? And that doesn't necessarily lead to more liberal or more conservative, but it leads to a more real conversation that kind of embraces the genuine nuance and subtlety and complexity of what this country is because the country is really complicated. It's not a blue country and it's not a red country, but our politics now are blue or red. It's like, no, there's no really easy answer to how we get to that. But I know 50 years from now, the country is going to be infinitely more complicated than it is right now. So then the the work of everyone is to like try to get everybody involved. And so that what about educating? Like, yes. wouldn't it be better if you're on Fox News than CNBC or MSNBC? It's like feeding something over and over and over again without trying anything new, right? Yeah. Well, how many hardcore conservatives watch the circus? I don't really know. It's a good question. It's a, you know, the show's not really ideological. No, like it's we're not. Doing, it's, you know, so we have, I think, a decent diversity of people who watch the show from different kinds of ideological points of view. I think the problem with Fox News is that it's like a propaganda network that's become like state television. So I'm not, I think a lot of people are not interested in working for something that feels like it's like you're working for Pravda, you know, or TASS, like from the Soviet Union in the 70s that just parrots the party line for the president all day long. It's hard to get a job there, even if you want to. They don't employ liberals there or anybody who's not like basically just on the pro-Trump message. But I think it's also the question of like, if Jack in the Box or uh, Carl's Jr. or uh, McDonald's or something came to you and said, Dave, we'd like you to take over to run the cuisine for— I would do it in a heartbeat. You would do it in a heartbeat. 100%. Really? I wouldn't even think twice With no it. constraints. If there was no constraints. I, I've said this before. One of my dream jobs would be to run McDonald's. Yeah. Because I can think about the positive change that I could bring. Yeah. Almost immediately. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, here's the truth. If Fox News offered me the possibility of running Fox News, I would take that job too. But for me— I can't just be worried about what fancy diners want. Yeah. And the rich. Oh. So I want to do the whole damn vertical because everyone wants to eat well. Yeah. Right. Regardless of how much money you have and your culture. So I think about that and I know that some of my peers are like, oh, Dave, Dave's just a populist. But no, no. But I think it's, it's a little different though from politics just in this sense, right? Because it's not tribal in food, right? It's not like people who like Chinese food hate Italian food or like are just committed like – the people who like Italian food are all fucking evil. And they're like, you know, I don't like that food. I like the Chinese food and I like the hamburgers, but I don't like the Italian food. Or I like Italian food, but I don't like Korean food. Like, you don't have to be angry at people who like Korean food. Unfortunately, our political culture now is like, if you like Korean food and I like Italian food, I fucking hate you. And I think that the fact that you like Korean food makes you fucking evil. Right. That's a different thing that you'd have to confront because you'd be like showing up at McDonald's. If it were like that, it'd be showing up at McDonald's and being like, okay, so the hamburgers you've always eaten here are fucking evil and you can never eat them again. I'm taking them all away from you. I'm going to force feed you kimchi for the rest of your life. Right. Like that would piss people off. Like maybe a little kimchi people would be into, but like some people would want a little kimchi, but you know, it's like the way our politics have become, it's all or nothing. You know, it's like not like you can have, is it ever not going to be in your prediction, be all or nothing. There's no balance anymore. Who, who can bring the balance? I don't know, man. Look, all I know is this, is that, and this is, this is not like, a, I don't have like a good optimistic thing. I tried to be optimistic with you a minute ago about like the diversity of the country and the whole <laughs> fucking, how, how different it was all going to be and shit. I, I, this is the best I can do. I know that like, it's an extraordinary thing that's happened in America before Donald Trump. Okay. We had three successive two-term presidents. It's like never happened before. Clinton, Bush, and Obama won two-term presidencies. 
really impressive. Like, doesn't even normally happen. That's a successful political career. You two, that's all you can do. Two terms, President of the United States. All three of them, very different guys in a lot of ways. But all three of them basically said the same thing when they ran in like slightly different ways. They all said, I want to end the bitter politics of polarization and division and partisanship and gridlock and all this tribalism. We got to find a way to, you know, Bill Clinton said it's a third way. We got to find, like, I want to be a new new Democrat, find a different kind of way we can talk to conservatives about their values and about the free market and so on, right? George W. Bush was like, you know, got to end this polarization and this partisanship. I'm going to be a, a compassionate conservative. You know, I'm going to be a different kind of conservative. I'm not going to be like that. You know, Obama did the same thing. He's like, his famously, he said, you know, we can disagree without being disagreeable. That was like the essence of what he ran on. So all three of those guys, really successful, really talented, really ambitious, really well-meaning politicians, two Democrats, one Republican, all had saw the same problem, the exact same problem you're diagnosing. They were the president of the United States. They saw this problem. They said, this is the fundamental problem in American life. And I want to try to fix it. And every one of them, when they left at the end of eight years, the situation was worse than when they came in. Mm. That's just true. Like, I never thought I'd see a president more polarizing than Bill Clinton. And then we had George W. Bush. And at the end of eight years of Bush, I was like, we'll never have a president more polarizing than George W. Bush. And at the end of Obama, he was more polarizing than Bush. And Trump's more polarizing than Obama. So I was like, I'm a scientist about this. Forget about my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations. I'm just looking at my life covering politics. And all of those trend lines are getting more pronounced rather than less pronounced. And good faith efforts to try to solve them by some of the most talented politicians I've ever covered failed. And not only failed, but the situation ended up being worse at the end than when they started. I don't blame the three of them. I'm trying to say that their failure at it points to the fact that there are these deeply embedded forces, like really deeply baked into our political culture right now. Some of it's about the partisanship of the media. Some of it's about gerrymandering. Some of it's about the role of money in our politics but and, and corporate influence. There's like all there, but these things are like not things that a president can solve, even if they want to try to solve it. So when I look to the future and say, well, is it going to get better? Is there a way to start a new conversation? Is there a way for things to get less polarized, to get us more in a communitarian place where we can have conversations and be respectful of each other's differences and kind of try to find consensus? I say, I fucking hope so, but I do not know what the path that is. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. I've been watching it. It's my whole political, my whole life covering politics is those three presidencies. I really started doing this, you know, in 1990, but at 28 years, and it's been the story of those three presidencies and now Trump. Trump's the only one who doesn't think it's out, who doesn't, he's, the way he's different is he's more polarizing than either of the previous three, but he doesn't think that's a problem. He thinks that's a good thing. And that's what's fucked up about Trump is that Bush and Clinton and Obama were all like sometimes helplessly, but genuinely trying to fix it. And they were just overwhelmed by the forces of partisanship and division, and they couldn't do anything. Trump is like, I fuck that. This partisanship and division is what works for me. I'm going to make it worse rather than even trying to make it better because the way I win in this last moment where there's just enough old white conservative votes to make a president in this weird fucked up electoral college system we have, I can ride the division and stoke the anger and try to make that a virtue for me politically, this division, rather than trying to ameliorate it. That's a fucked up thing. I mean, that to me is the most fucked up thing about Trump. It's not, you know, the tax cuts or, I mean, there's terrible policies of his, you know, kids in cages on the border is a horrible human tragedy. The way he's handled the hurricane in Puerto Rico, horrible. You know, some of the stuff is just standard brand Republicanism. Some of it's just terrible incompetence. But at the core thing of the thing I find most troubling is that He's not fighting the good fight against the forces of division. He's exacerbating them. His thing is like, that's my ticket to ride. That's the only way I can win because polarization is how I won. And that's what he's doing right now. And he's going to do it for the next two years. It might work again. Do you think anyone can stand a chance in the next election? I do. Who's a candidate that can like stand up to him? Well, there's going to be a lot of people I think we're going to try to stand up to him. Maybe too many. We'll see. I mean, Democrats, as you know, are uh, famous for not being able to organize a one-car funeral procession. So, you know, they're, you know, there's problems with the Democratic Party, and there, you know, there's going to be a lot of interfactional fighting and everything. I'll, I'll say though that I think it is the case, and and I'm not, I, the Republicans get mad when I say this because I'm not using it as an excuse. Donald Trump won by the system that we operate under, the Electoral College. He won a narrow victory, seventy thousand votes in three states that put him over the top, but he won. 
let's put Russia to the side, you know, because there's good case to be made that, that if it wasn't for the Russians, he wouldn't have won. But I grant that you can win in our system. You can become president of the United States with getting 270 electoral votes, even if you lose the popular vote. That's, we designed that system. That's, that's the rules of the game. So I'm not making, offering this as an excuse, but I am saying she did win three and a half million more votes than him. And so that points to a fundamental failure of campaign strategy. Like, okay, you won the popular vote by three and a half million and you couldn't like figure out how to target those votes in the right places to get you over the top on 270. That's a huge failure on the Clinton campaign's part. But it points to the fact that she was more popular in the country than he is. And most of his big policies, many of the policies that he's most associated with, you have like 60% of the country are against them. So the country's not with Trump, but the people who are with him are really with him. And figuring out how to take the larger degree of popular consensus behind policies that are a little bit left of center rather than Trump policies and Trump personality and figure out how do you harness that Make sure if you're Hillary Clinton, you go to Wisconsin, for instance, mm. like, you know, like not show up and then lose the state. I'm sorry. Like, I, I you know. Still can't believe it. It's the most ridiculous <laughs> thing in the world. It's the most ridiculous in the world. You, you're sleeping on, it. like presidential campaigns are supposed to be paying attention to battleground states all the time, every day, every minute. And when you start to see anything slip, you send your person there. You send guys there. You send more money there. You send the candidate there. You can't wake up on election day and be like, oh shit, like we forgot about Wisconsin. Oh my God. Like we lost that state. We didn't even know it was in play. It's fucking crazy. So you know, competence is an important part of it. But I think it's likely, I'm not an advocate for any of these candidates because I'm going to have to cover them all. But given where the energy is in the in the Democratic Party right now, which is to say mostly with like the most important constituency in the party is women. I thought in 2016, I thought a woman would be the Democratic nominee. After Obama, a non-white man became the nominee and the president, I thought a woman would be the nominee. So I thought only two people really had a chance to be the nominee, Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren. And I think if Elizabeth Warren had run against Hillary in that election cycle, she would have gotten a lot of Bernie's energy and would have beaten Hillary Clinton because she's a better candidate. So I look now and I say, you know, especially if there's this, if there is a blue wave and Democrats do take control of the House and maybe the Senate, it's going to be on the backs and on, with the hands supporting of like millions of women. So I look at you know, Elizabeth Warren and uh, Senator Kamal Harris from here and Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, you know, you look at you look at the women, Amy Klobuchar, you look at these women in that large crop of Democratic nominees. Those women, I think, have a leg up. Doesn't mean they're going to necessarily win. They could cancel each other out. There's a lot of things that could happen. But I find it hard to believe, like, the party's going to, like, nominate another old white man. Like, I love Joe Biden. I've loved him forever. I mean, I've covered him for a long time. I like him as a person. I get his political strengths, but is the party, is the Democratic Party in 2020 really going to nominate like a white guy in his 70s? Mm. That makes any sense to me. The party is too much now about women and non-white to, and that doesn't mean that, that all white men are disqualified from representing those people. You know, it's just down in Texas, you know, where Better O'Rourke is giving Ted Cruz a run for his money because of the fact that he's like, basically he's got some Hispanic heritage, but mostly he looks like a conventional white guy candidate, but who's really- He looks presidential, doesn't he? He's, he's an incredible communicator. He's, a, he's an incredible communicator, and whether he beats Cruz or not, he's got a huge future in the party, I think. But he's got a wave of support from Hispanics down there who are mad about Trump and the border policies, and they are flocking to that guy, and they see a Bobby Kennedy. That's what Bobby Kennedy did. He basically said, you know, I want to be a white guy who can unify working-class whites, working-class blacks, working-class other non-white Americans, and pull it all together. So it's not like you're disqualified, but in a race where there are like maybe 20 Democrats running— does it help right. to be a woman at this point? I think it does. And I think all those women, you know, Elizabeth Warren coming out of this Kavanaugh thing has done a couple pieces of political communication, like little videos where she's like this thing about she did the other day where she did a little video about like owning her anger, like being like women are never allowed to be angry because it makes us unattractive. And even in the Kavanaugh hearings, there was a moment she cites this moment where Senator Grassley says to Dr. Ford, he's like, uh, would you like to have a, a break right now? And she says, well, th would that work for you? Hmm. And Elizabeth Warren's like, the most fucked up thing in the world. She didn't say it quite that way, but she's like, this is really screwed up. This is the hardest day of this woman's life. And she's just told this incredible, powerful, wrenching story about her sexual assault. And when a old white man says to her, would you like to take a break? She wants to know if, I, if it's, is it okay with him? Not like, fuck yeah, I want my break. But like, is it, does that work for you, Senator? And sure, her little video was basically about like, women need to own their anger. It's okay to be angry. We're fucking pissed. Let's take our anger and turn it into action. Again, Elizabeth Warren has flaws, but you looked at that piece of video, you're like, I understand how that could work in the mm -hmm. Democratic Party. That's powerful. 
Senator Harris has done some powerful stuff and is a very compelling candidate, a very compelling person, super smart and full of principle and has that prosecutor's iron, you know, steel in her bearing. There's a lot of, there's a lot of talented people running in the Democratic Party. And I think, you know, the only question is whether, because there's so many of them, whether Democrats will trip over themselves and they'll turn into like this giant, you know, 20 person circular firing squad. Um, We are, I got to go to work. Yeah, and no, you got to go to work too. I know we got to go. We, I don't even know what time it is. Here. Three ten, oh, um, and I have to be at Major Domo. This is fun though. Yeah, I mean it's nice because I because of our respective lives. Because your life is what it is, and my life is what it is. I don't really get to see you that often. Where no. I can, where I sit across from you for like ninety minutes and just talk. No, that's a little bit of like what just happened here is we actually did not really do a podcast. We just like sort of had. But this is what not, it's like normally with, with us anyway. When we I know, but out. it's but it's good though because I've, I've been had ninety minutes to sit with you for a long time, and I realized that. If we weren't with the headphones on, <laughs> it doesn't happen. this is probably the same conversation we would have had yeah. you know, if we were, had like a drink and we're at Major Domo and you had 90 minutes where you could focus on me, which is like not that common. And so, me too to you. It's like we don't have that We much. should do it more often. Thank yes. you for doing Thanks for all the support. And John's been weirdly on my side for a long time. So I thank have. You. you know me. The thing you understand that I, that I think is great. It's the, almost the 25th anniversary of Wired Magazine, where I was involved at the very beginning when Wired first started. And there's a, actually a whole weekend happening next weekend about the 25th uh, anniversary of Wired, which started in 1993. And Louis Rosetta, the guy who was the, the founder of it with his wife, Jane Metcalf, and a couple other friends of mine, Louis used to say often, he's like, the only thing that's fun in life is making shit and breaking shit. And like, that's a kind of like, that's a very Changish thing. I like, you know, it's like, I, I'm very loyal to my friends. And I really admire your making shit and breaking shit kind of thing. It's like you, <laughs> it's fun to watch you break shit and it's fun to watch you make shit. And, and it's funny, even in the making, you're often breaking, but eventually it kind of comes together and it's kind of beautiful. Oh, well, you're never going to compliment me. No, that's it. This is like the nicest thing. This podcast is always going to take it all back. Nicest thing I've ever said to you. It is. Making shit and breaking shit. We will have you back again soon. The, the Tao of Chang. Watch the circus and uh, Sunday nights on Showtime at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific time. Check it out. It's All praise fucking, David Nevins. It's fucking rad. The show's rad. It is Check rad. It out. It's rad. Check it out. All right. Bye.